Hello and welcome to Pharmarama. This week we start with a trip to Abraham Organics, a specialist halal and tayeb meat supplier in London. We learn about the work of the Open Food Network from Lynn Davis and Mark Harrison. Then we're visiting two old friends of the show, first Ed Hamer, with some practical vegetable growing advice. And we'll end the show with Ben Raskin from the Soil Association. He's taken a visit to Plotgate CSA in Dorset as part of the CSA Network's mentoring programme. Abby is sat next to me. Hello. And a surprise for you, look who's back. It's me. Hello. That's Nigel for um, <laughs> new listeners to the show. Yeah. Nigel, where have you been? We haven't, I don't think we've heard from you since late last year. Well, ever since pretty much the beginning of this year, I've been very like focused on the farm. So my parents um, have had a trip plans to go and visit some relatives in New Zealand and Australia. So basically, yeah, I've been in charge of the farm for like the last two months. So it's been pretty full on. I've not really had much time for doing any extra curricular activities. So mainly farming and yeah, like so basically stock work. My days have consisted of like looking after the cattle, looking after the sheep, feeding, bedding down, just the sort of day to day um, routine of, of um, farm life in the winter. Yeah, I, th- I think it went. I think it went pretty well, and um, you know, uh, mum and dad are back, and they seem pleased that you know that their animals are still there and, and they have a farm. So yeah, I just like to say um, there is a helicopter circling above us at the moment. It's been here for the last two hours. Um, we were hoping it was going to go away, so we apologise this month if this interferes with your listening experience, but. Uh, we have made 19 episodes which have all come out on time and we're not about to let that slip. God, it's getting worse, isn't it? Abraham Organics are a specialist halal and tayeb meat supplier based on the outskirts of southeast London in Keyston, Kent. They pride themselves on working closely with suppliers and producers to make sure everyone gets a fair deal, including farmers, wholesalers, and even the cows. We chat to one of its partners, Musin Hassanin, to find out more. It started uh, quite a few years ago now. If I'm correct, it's probably nine years ago now, and it was under... Um, an instructor of us, one of our spiritual teachers who said, um, you know, the meat quality is very bad, this would be a good business, go out and inquire and make this happen. Um, and then eventually it was taken over by my current business partner, Zeki, and his wife. Uh, they were running it for about four years uh, without us, and then we've now come on board, me and another partner have come on board to um, promote it and move it forward um, because we believe that you know, it's actually an ethical obligation for Muslims to eat meat that is halal, but also something called taib, which means wholesome. Uh, you can go anywhere in the country and see halal signs. You can go to any uh, any place and find halal meat, but the, the taib, which is also always um, attached to halal in the Quran or the injunction, the religious injunction, is not there. Uh, and the wholesome element, how the animals are raised, how they're treated, um, what they're fed, all these questions that the scholars previously would actually wouldn't even eat animals that had been 
traded by somebody who was a fortune teller, for example, or somebody who had a you know a negative uh, a quality, you know, and wow. it was that scrupulous. I don't want to have be associated with something that is harmful to the environment, to people, to um, uh, and and uh, ultimately myself. I, I do take that very seriously, and then I have also become a smallholder, and I want to create food. If we're thinking about putting weight on animals, if we're thinking about how much I get at market, if we're thinking about all these things, how do I maintain my business? Why do I not get bankrupt, debt, etc., etc.? It's the incorrect paradigm. We have it's going to take a revolutionary shift. But Brexit, Trump, you know, these things are big revolutionary things that I think are moving towards. And the halal market commands so much money in in the world. We have to get this right. And I think a lot of compromise has happened in the halal market that shouldn't be there. And the Muslim community and the, and the, and the, the way that we've got used to cheap meat because of being an immigrant culture to the West and having no money. You know, my parents came here with nothing. You know, my mum wasn't even, she wasn't Muslim. She became Muslim in London. But my dad came here with literally, you know, he was working in a car park. He had nothing. Um, and they had to make do. And it was one halal shop, and it cost this much, and that was it. You were happy to get meat that wasn't pork or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, so... And that's become a culture. But now we're, we're wising up. We've got a middle class, a growing middle class Muslim community. A lot of our customers, doctors, lawyers, judges, you know, Sadiq, Ma- Sadiq Khan is the mayor of mayor of London. It, it's, it's a prominent part of London life, a prominent part of the UK life to be British and Muslim, have a countryside farmer who's Muslim, smallholders that are Muslim is growing. So I think I'm part of a, the beginning of the halal, uh, part of the halal farming movement. Uh, and control of the process of slaughter. And another big thing, actually, that I have to mention is slaughter is not co- talked about at all. Mm-hmm. And people have so many misconceptions about halal slaughter. It's like, oh, we don't do halal slaughter. I said, well, I only do the same slaughter as what the slaughterman that would be doing your meat would be doing anyway. The only difference is, is that I'm slightly more brown than that slaughterman and I prescribe to another religion. I don't do anything different. To make it pr- purely properly halal as how the prophet himself talked about it and prophet abraham is actually where we get slaughtered from so we actually kind of copied the jews and the christians mm-hmm. the reality is i know every slaughterhouse has got what we call a end of line muslim because end of line slaughterman because then they can market that meat as halal if they want to and they can market that meat as non-halal if they want to whereas a ritual slaughter is slightly different that's when the animal's not stunned and i, and I, I don't agree with that i agree with stunning and i agree with non-stunning but in different circumstances okay so we have our organic halal chicken and our organic halal lamb has been certified by the Soil association which means it must be stunned prior to killing okay uh, we use organic certified abattoirs and organic certified suppliers etc etc pfla suppliers and we, we uh, organic pfla certified um, suppliers come through us and we, 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 we then slaughter with a stun. We also do unstunned slaughter for beef, but we also do stunned slaughter for beef. But okay. we just, we, if we can manage it, we, we, we work with what we can manage. And the fact, the, the simple fact is, is that there's not a lot of Muslims demand, uh, there's not a big demand for beef, but we've got a lot of demand for mince. So mm-hmm. we've had to opt for a trim option, which is basically buying inventory-based um, beef that's HMC certified, uh, sorry, um, unstunned beef. Um, that's done in, according to all the vets and what you know this this slaughterhouse exists in a very um you know above board and people are very happy with the process but um that's just a, that's just a bone of contention for us because we don't actually like that way my my most preferred option would be the australia method which is an electrical stun to the head and then a throat slit mm-hmm. rather than a captive bolt stun but what abattoir is going to take that on board when the electric stun is probably going to be like you know 100 grand for the machine or something Maybe we can get investors or do something and just work with it. That would be my preferred option. And then we can have organic certified stunned cattle. 
the way people believe or think about religion is in a kind of it's dogmatic understanding of this top-down controlling people. And I disagree with that type of religion. And that is a problem in society. I'm not going to dismiss that. But that leads to Zieg Heilin the same way as it leads to we kill for the sake of Allah and, and kill somebody because they're a different religion. It's the same sickness in a human being. Mm-hmm. Whereas the, the traditional understanding is that an animal or a human being is sacred. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's a sacrifice, this is the bit that's missing completely. It, it should be a sacrifice. What sacrifice is it for meat, people to eat meat now? They don't have any connection to that sacrifice whatsoever. Now, I personally have a, a, a theory that if you're, not allowed, if you're not prepared to kill it, you shouldn't eat it. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that has informed my life now because I've said, well, if I'm eating all this, I've got to be prepared to kill it. And I became a slaughterman because of it. So, you know, I'm not telling everybody to be as proactive. and You don't need millions of slaughtermen. What you need mm-hmm. is millions of people that are willing to engage with the topic without emotion mm-hmm. and start saying, you know what, there are lots of people on this earth and we have to get along. We're not going to just say liberalism and secularism is the way. There's so many, be- so many beauties out of liberalism and secularism, but there's so many misconceptions about what religion and what that dictates, and that is a big part of the whole halal organic movement. We work with a school that's catering at the moment. They were featured on BBC the other day. Um, and she's a she's a you know a complete pioneer. She's actually aware of Alan Savory. She's aware of all this sort of um, sustainable food. And she's a chef pushing uh, whole food, whole animal cooking, in in uh, her Hackney school in London, uh, Mandeville Primary School. And uh, we supplied them, but we, our condition was that we give her the whole bird. We can't give her inventory. Struggle at first worked out with us and got a price that she's happy with. She said, actually, it's not that much different to what I was paying before. She was being ripped off, to be honest. Um, and it was unfair, actually. Um, and we're able to supply them and to watch, you know, kids that are low-income families, um, you know, would never be eating free-range animal or even... Because we wanted to push organic, but it was a bit too much. Sure. Free-range, you know, birds that have been raised outdoors, had a good life, good dispatch, and they're being fed into an inner-city school. I think big things are coming for that. Um, to, to, to bridge the gap, I think, again, is the cooking, but it's also to its education. Um, the Muslim community are 100% certain that they're not happy with the non-organic side of it because we have the biggest incidences in the Pakistani community. We are, from the Pakistani community, I'm not in the Pakistani community, but from their own words, huge amount of disease in their community. A lot of associating factors, but they have a really strong belief that it's the food they're eating. Um, refined flour, refined sugar... Uh, refined oils when they make a change to organic or free-range animals they're avoiding antibiotics generally they're avoiding high amounts of soy processed feed and um, they believe strongly that that's a massive part of why they're sick so i personally believe that's our leverage point eczema asthma all these problems that we've got with kids to really push that we've got the schools on board we can do something like that promote it amongst the community and i think you have to catch catch the parents by the kids you know, maybe processed rubbish chicken and rubbish meat is okay and your kids will be be fine. Maybe they won't. And this is, I do have that same feeling, it's a bubble, it's a permaculture bubble. You've got the permaculture bubble, you've got the grass-fed bubble, you've got the PFLA bubble. It's not going to go mainstream until that data comes in and then people start applying, a, a practical knowledge comes in and we can convince the movers and shakers. That's the only way it's going to happen. And I think it's, this is it, this is the time. Br- Brexit... Uh, insecure, not knowing what's going on, make something happen. Musin Hassanin speaking to Abby there. You can check out their website organic-halal-meat.com. Um, what do you make of that, Nigel? Halal meat. What's your take on it? Is it something that you know about as a as a farmer, as a 
meat lover. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, in terms of being a farmer, it's really key. It's a huge market and a growing market. And I just know from selling our sheep in market, you know, in the local livestock market in Hailsham, that if it wasn't for the rising demand for halal meats, that sheep prices would be a lot worse. Certainly for the sort of our cold ewes and some of our larger stock, larger lambs and, and hoggets, they wouldn't fetch near the price that they do. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a really positive thing. And, and you read a lot of the industry magazines and they talk about halal actually offsetting some of the challenges of maybe not supplying as much meat overseas. So really positive. Open Food Network UK CEO Lynn Davis was one of the founding members of Dean Forest Food Hub. She has a background in computing, and as they moved to selling online, she realised that local food projects would always struggle to fund their software platforms. She discovered Australian open source platform, the Open Food Network, OFN, and has teamed up with other food hubs to bring it to the UK. Open Food Network provides tools for farmers' markets to allow their producers to sell online, as well as allowing farmers and farm shops to sell direct. We hear some of the ins and outs of using the Open Food Network software from Lynn and also farmer Mark Harrison, based at Stroud Community Agriculture, which was one of the first producers to start using this system to help them sell online. My name is Lynn Davis and I'm part of the Open Food Network in the UK. So the Open Food Network is essentially a bunch of web tools that are designed to help producers or communities to create their own food distribution systems. Part of that is the front end side of having sales, um, having an online platform so that you can offer sales on the internet to customers, take payments, things like that. The other side of that is the back end functionality that gives you reporting, predictions of you know, sales in the future based on sales in the past, um, different kinds of administration so that you can manage your customers and the contact details so that you can contact them if you want to. At the moment, the main users have switched over from other software. So they've been running food hubs where they've maybe had 60 or 80 different producers that they're combining under one platform so that food eaters can go on there and order from a big list of producers at once. It's been really positive. Tamar Valley Food Hubs have found when they switched over, actually doubled the sales through their food hub because the platform was much easier to use than what they were using before. Also, small producers that have wanted to explore doing direct sales themselves and then finding that through the Open Food Network, not only can they sell to their own customers, but then they can access other food hubs or food distribution enterprises nearby. They can expand their market without having to do that another uploading of products, managing the stock, blah, blah, blah. It's all managed centrally in one place. And the beauty of the Open Food Network is that we actually have the capacity to scale this right up. So we could have a small producer who's selling to Food Hub and that Food Hub actually distributes to a few different community groups locally 
or we could join together different food hubs that want to import, say, maybe citrus from Spain. Maybe an individual food hub isn't big enough to warrant getting a pallet every week, but a few food hubs together. Another side of that is the flexibility of the platform. So we don't make any demands as to what your business model should be. You have full control whether you are a farmer's market that wants to add 10%, or maybe you're a buying group where everybody's volunteering their time so you don't add any markup. Or maybe you're actually a retail shop and you need to add a 30% markup, um, but you also want to be able to facilitate people buying online so you can do deliveries. You know, maybe people come and pick up and you charge no delivery fee. Maybe you have home delivery and you charge a delivery fee for that. So all of the fee structures mean that you can create a business model that really works for your community or your enterprise. You're not locked into anything else. You know, there's some rise of platforms out there like Airbnb and Uber and in some ways they're really good, they provide a service in other ways, they're really concentrating power so that the owners of that software become very wealthy from everybody else using it. You know, that concentration of power like everyone else in our food system is something that we don't want to see happen. So we're running it as a platform cooperative. People who are users can make decisions on how it works, including, you know, who gets paid what and what functionality we should be implementing next. Writing software is a huge expense. If you want bespoke features, then you've got to fork out quite a lot. What we've done, we've recognised as the Open Food Network that actually these features are needed by food producers and communities all over the world. And so the software is written in a collaborative open source way and we have groups in Australia, in Germany, in France, in Norway, in Sweden, in the States, in Canada, in South Africa, in Brazil, in India, you know, actually there's people all over the world now who are contributing to the open source community and helping to build new features. It's been specifically designed for food, you know, there's a lot of e-commerce stuff out there, but a lot of it won't handle some of the nuances when you're actually trying to sell food. So you know that you can do maybe 10 bags of salad a week, or you know that in the freezer you've got, you know, four lambs left and that's your stock levels so you can limit that stock to what you actually have say you're selling cheese or cuts of meat um, but you want people to be able to order in advance real classic problem that you don't you know you have different weights and different cuts and you can't actually predict in advance what they're going to be so the platform allows you to have that flexibility you can say around about this much and then charge actually a bit more or a bit less when you have the weights in if you wanted to do group buying so supporting things like meat shares if you know that you get to a certain order and you can send uh, so many of your animals off to slaughter and then but if you get a bigger order you can send even more you can kind of set tiers of stock levels so we try to really work with giving the flexibility to what works for producers rather than demanding that producers work to the consumer. As a small-scale food producer, it is really hard to make a living. We all know that. Finding extra money to try out online sales is not really something that people want to find the budget for. So it is a, based on a pay-what-you-can model. You can try it out, see if it works for you. And what we're asking is that if people do find that it adds value to their business, then think about if that some of that value could be contributed back to the platform so that other people can use it as well. In the UK at the moment, we've actually been supported by Esme Fairbairn to launch and we have funding to support food producers that want to come on board so we, we're able to help people get started and you know provide the hand-holding and things like that. So now's a really good time to get in touch if you want to try it out.
My name's Mark Harrison. I'm a grower from Stroud Community Agriculture, which is a CSA based in uh, Gloucestershire. We farm 50 acres in total, but we have seven acres vegetables, uh, mixed and um, beef and uh, pigs and sheep. The bulk of the business is through the CSA, which means that we have a very regular market that we supply, but we do have surpluses in the summer. So using the OFN, we've really been able to sell most of our surpluses then to the local community. The CSA bit is just the veg, so again we can sell the meat through the Open Food Network and uh, it gives us a wider market within the local community. It's just once a week, it takes us an hour maybe to pack it up because the produce is all there anyway. You know, it takes another hour to drop it, up, to drive it up, and drop it off. And that's all it takes is two hours. It's all done for us. You know, the, the people pre-ordered it. We know exactly what they want the day before. We can make it up. We can deliver it the night before. You know, it's just very efficient from our point of view. Give it a go. <laughs> Eyes for the interest on our overdraft. J is for Jameson, with which we go down. K is for Clifton. Okay, who remembers this? She's the wonderful voice of Ed Hamer. That's right. Nigel, do you remember? Where did we hear him? We had him at the Oxford Real Farming Conference last year. And um, it's nice to remember back. We had That was from, an, uh, well, it must have been episode seven. Wow, do you really know that? Yeah. Well, it's like seven, <laughs> six yeah, months since seven. we started, because it's yes, in January. that's right, that's right. We've had him on the show before to talk about his policy work for the Landworkers Alliance, and we've got him here again. This time he's got some tips for growing courgettes in tyres, and also raised green manure beds. So we're quite unique, um, Chag Food Community Market Garden, in the sense that we're farming at 650 feet above sea level uh, in the southwest of England, um, and that has a significant effect on the growing conditions and the length of our growing season. One of the things we noticed in the first two or three years we were growing was that um, we would plant the courgettes and squash out in the beginning of May, and we'd quite consistently have a strong um, northeasterly wind, cold wind, um, that would come and um, buffer the, buffet the, um, the young seedlings, um, and it would burn, often burn the leaves because it was a cold wind. Um, <clears throat> and we picked up a very useful tip from a friend, Martin Godfrey, a local grower, um, of um, laying out tyres, old used tyres um, from garages, just out onto mypex, so um, that helps to prevent some of the leaching of the rubber into the soil. But it creates, a, and the first thing it does is create a windbreak around the plant, um, but importantly, it also creates a microclimate. That tyre, because it's black, it heats up in the sun um, and it creates a, um, a warm air pocket that the, the seedling then grows up into. And it's only really when it's big enough that it's ready to put its leaves over the top of the tyre. And by that stage, it's kind of um, resilient to the wind that we have. And usually by the beginning of June, that wind has swung around to the southwest anyway. Um, also, it's worth pointing out that um, using this system, if you are going to get a late frost, we sometimes get a frost in June. If that was the case and we were going to get a late frost, it, having the tyres over the squash plants means we can pull a length of fleece over the whole section of um, the cucurbits without damaging any of the plants because they're all safely protected by their own individual tyre. So for us and anyone, I think, growing on an exposed site or anyone at high altitude, um, that that system works incredibly well in terms of um, mitigating the effects of a shortened season. 
Um, again, um, driven by the fact that we're uh, um, on a marginal growing site, uh, we need to do everything we can to be able to get onto the ground earlier in the spring um, in order to get the early crops, the potatoes and onions into the ground and get that ground cultivated. So we've discovered almost by accident over the past um, three or four years that if we um, ridge up um, the ground in the any spare ground that we're going to put a winter green manure on in the autumn, so in October, September, October, we ridge up that area and then broadcast a green manure onto ridges. Um, you can do it either using a potato plough, we've done it with a horse-drawn implement. Um, you're then overwintering on ridges, and what it means is that by the spring, those ridges actually drain the, um, drain the soil much better than you would on the flat soil. It also means because it, the ground is ridged, it has a bigger surface area, larger surface area than flat ground, and um, those ridges actually warm up a lot quicker in the early spring sunshine. As a result, we think typically we're able to get on the ground a couple of weeks earlier, um, and we simply drive over those ridges with a disc harrow um, and open them up. Um, and you're basically incorporating the green manure as you go, but you've got a really nice fluffy tilth inside those ridges that's dry, it's warm. Uh, and it can be a matter of two or three passes with the disc harrows over those overwintered ridges. And then you've got a good enough tilth to go straight in and put the potatoes. So we think by doing that, it's probably saved us a couple of weeks um, at the start of the season um, for the last couple of years. Now for another friend of the show, Ben Raskin of the Soil Association. He visited Plotgate CSA, part of the CSA network. The voices you hear, other than Ben's, belong to Amy, Dan and Jane at Plotgate. So tell us what's going on here. We're about a year old. Uh, we set the CSA up last spring. We, we are growing vegetables in a, in a field in Somerset. <laughs> we, we had a walk around this morning and what, one of the things that struck me was the way you've designed the, the growing system, so you've got raised beds, but also running on contours. So talk me through the process of that decision process. One of the ideas is um, to try and minimise uh, mechanisation. So we're trying to work out a way to grow without tractors. Um, and we're trying to retain as much of the moisture, the rainfall and the fertility to uh, try and work towards what we think is um, a truly sustainable food system that is both um, low input and accessible to most people to be able to, to, to participate in the process of growing with the mind to create a community um, driven food system as opposed to a industrial food system. And at the moment you're growing on about an acre and a half, is that right? About an acre and a half. Yeah, and, and you're, you're about two and a half. I guess. Yeah. So how are you how are you getting from pasture to raised bed with without mechanisation? Uh, so firstly, we've uh, we've got some pigs. They're, they're very sweet little creatures that are um, digging over the the pasture, rooting out all the perennial weeds, particularly the dandelions, which is a, one of our biggest problems, uh, and the thistles. They're on there for about a year and we will then move them on to another patch which we'll be doing next year and that leaves the ground really nice and clean for um, then sculpting the, the raised beds of which uh, we're developing uh, hand-powered tools which facilitate the process of, of moving the soil. 
Yeah, so all the beds are four foot wide, um, five foot centre to centre on the on the paths either side. So the tool that we're developing is basically a two a two person push tool um, that allows you to to cultivate and to um, to use different tooling attachments uh, in order to run up and down the beds um, as as two people pushing in an upright position, which obviously is much better in terms of the sort of ergonomics of of, of growing. Than, uh, than bending over a hoe um, and allows you to make make the most of those kind of weather windows when the conditions are right for hoeing um, and to to get around a lot more of the garden much more quick much more quickly so what what drove you to set up as a CSA rather than a commercial more traditional vegetable growing operation well I've certainly come to uh, horticulture through a CSA and um, just really really love the the way that CSAs try to connect people with with play with the places where their food's grown with how their food's grown um, the opportunities that it offers people to understand more about that process to be involved with that process um, without having to take on the full responsibility of growing stuff for themselves it, it's more fun doing it with other people I can't imagine that I would I would want to grow if I was by myself in a field and and also it's about it's about education it's about trying to engage people with 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 the food debate so yeah for us a csa a csa was the was the obvious choice and it's also about short supply chains and being able to sell direct to people yeah it's it's been really important and it's about building resilience as well if you have um just the right level of connection between various things within a system then that builds the local resilience and ultimately the resilience of the food system from an economic, ecological and the social aspects. These are all very important uh, to build up this day and age, if I may put it that way. And this model seemed to me, from having observed various others, this one was you know, a shining example of resilience in action. So it's the sort of thing that makes you very much want to be part of that. And I hope that other people will also want to be part of that and come and um, join in in some way locally and that's really what we're all about is encouraging that participation in the process of doing our shares of veg every week in the pub and by delivery. Thank you for that Ben. The Plotgate visit was part of the CSA Network Mentoring Programme which is a really great scheme offered by the CSA Network in the UK and they still have funding left for more mentoring days in England so do get in touch. And we also wanted to let you know that Ben has two new books out. The first is the Community Gardening Handbook, which um, does pretty much what it says on the tin. And he's got another one for uh, helping to inspire a younger generation, which is called Grow. And it's a family guide to growing fruits. And Nigel, can you fill us in on the Boom Awards? The Boom Awards is the best of organic markets awards. And it's a really um, great opportunity for you to go out and nominate your favourite um, organic farmer, producer um, or rising star. So you've basically got until the end of the month to go onto the website and nominate someone. And Nigel, you're really hiding under a bushel there, which is not like you. Oh, yeah. And so I'm, I've been asked to judge the awards as well. So, um, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to judging the awards sometime early May. And I think there's a, a, an award ceremony um, in July as well. So hopefully see some of you there.
Okay, so before we go, we've got a little bit of an announcement. Farmerama is now advert free. Because uh, we take the feedback that it's been a little bit annoying. Um, you don't need to change anything if you listen to the show on our website or if you download it through iTunes or actually wherever you download it. Um, for the technical listener out there who will understand the RSS feed, it's not going to change. But you can now find us on SoundCloud. We look forward to sharing more stories from the smaller scale farming community next month. So goodbye from me. Hello. Goodbye from me. And Nigel, are you going to promise to come back and join us again next month? I'll definitely be back next month for sure, Joe. Yeah. We'll hold you to that. Okay.